Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, accounts of madrasas post 9-11 bearing of recent history. And I, I, th this presentation actually draws upon the ground Toby Matheson had uh, uh, covered last week. And I can build up from where Toby left, both spatially and temporally. Also, while Toby covered Islam marginally, I roughly come to the same position after looking at madrasas more centrally as routine transmitters of the knowledge of Islam and their bearing on explaining events in recent history. <clears throat> but there are, in fact, other reasons that provide the link between the Middle East and the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. Before the Cold War, these countries formed part of Arc of Islam in Izbigniew Brzezinski's imagined geography that connected in the geostrategic great game North Africa and Middle East with Central Asia to its southern and southeastern parts. President Obama's FPAC region and the Middle Eastern countries have exchanged people and ideas, labor and capital, both for economies of peace and war. The historical relationship is so enduring and geostrategically relevant that Arabs continue to engage in a variety of ways in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Sometimes this engagement involved hunting Soviet infidels. At other times, it involves participation in sport with falconry which UNESCO regards as part of Arab cultural heritage. Pakistan's Minister of Foreign Affairs had been extending invitations to Arab dignitaries for the hunting of Hobara, Bustard, through falconry, in view of Pakistan's strong fraternal and diplomatic relations with Gulf countries. But this mention of falconry is not just a pleasant diversion. It actually evokes symbolic, substantive symbolic, parallels with drone attacks. Going further back in history, another variant of falconry entailed in pooling of Middle East's financial resources through matching grant with the United States to organize jihad against the Soviets during the 1980s. The great game which was played in Afghanistan at the end of the Cold War provides a backdrop to my paper. With this introduction, let me highlight three interrelated questions that my presentation today will deal with. First, what accounts for an unprecedented intellectual curiosity of madrasas resulting into spate of studies on the subject published post 9-11? Comparing English publications pre and post 9-11, one enormous difference in numbers is specially noticeable. I mean, if there are three or four very major or very, very major publications in the 20th century, one finds a plethora of literature on madrasas in the first decade of 21st century. I mean, if you Google, Hazrat Sar Google, uh, uh, you find at least half a million references if you just type madrasas, with, of course, with a particular spelling. Second, I problematize the processes that bring the institution of madrasas to the attention of large number of scholars around the world to observe and comment on. 
The scholarly writings on madrasas, jihad, 9-11, Afghanistan, Pakistan, follow two opposed thematic orientations. One set of writings, one that respond to the alleged role of madrasas in religiously motivated violence in peaceful societies, and the second stream of writings highlight cooperation between the secular and the religious actors in setting up jihadi network of willing fighters for the great game in Afghanistan during the 1980s. The third question, what do we make of the mutually opposed writings and the picture of reality they convey and its bearing on social sciences, science, social science method and perspectives? I argue that the covert operation has distorted social science tools that are currently in need uh, of immediate correction. Now, before surveying uh, various accounts, let me share with you two illustrations of relevance to the implicit perspective and method which I follow. One point to bear in mind. In discourse, discourse as uh, uh, highlighted in Foucault, Said makes use of it, uh, in the realm of discourse, a segment of reality is reborn, this time indexed, cropped up, to serve the second context of use. Between the reality and what is indexed, I have this image from the science of chemistry, isomorphs. There are two compounds, identical in formula, but different in properties. But to take you a little closer to our familiar two domains, which don't reflect, actually. They stay close to each other, parallel lines, asymptotic. Uh, what are these vertical lines? Well, these are really interventions on the power of some major signifier wanting to connect the two for this or that purpose. It could be a powerful actor, an institution, or a major, major global uh, uh, project. Now, at the time of, this is 2001, Blue Burqa books. I'm not trying to argue that these uh, individual authors who wrote these books, they are really very genuine, authentic people. But the real world is that a book actually takes also a rebirth in discourse. And therefore you have uh, uh, these books together uh, forming a kind of a diegetic space. I'll come to this term, uh, term later, but diegetic space is really the visible, virtual space which actually has materiality, although it's virtual, fictional, uh, uh, but it has a materiality as hard as this wall. Uh, and uh, this is 2001, and uh, uh, Laura Bush, who was actually a proponent of, uh, you know, uh, liberating Afghan uh, women, and, and that actually was the reason why United States uh, entered United, uh, Afghanistan. 
And of course, you might be a little skeptical that I'm all making it up. Okay? Right. This is actually what concretizes what I'm saying. Uh, seemingly, this is uh, uh, a very benign poster. A little child, uh, women who are sort of rushing from one point to the other. But in fact, this is uh, Amnesty International's poster saying NATO keep the progress going on women's rights. It's a, it's a different matter that this uh, poster actually came up for uh, a, a, a debate and there, w- there was this Afghan Women's Revolutionary Association, this uh, Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan who perhaps provided a counter-narrative to say that uh, this is uh, not really uh, adequate to what we are doing on the ground and uh, it, According to their perception, uh, the NATO-based-backed warlords are really the third enemy. Now, my second illustration. Uh, uh, sorry, wait. Uh, my, my second illustration is, and this is familiar to people here in St. Anthony's, uh, uh, but also otherwise, Dr. Ibrahim Al-Marashi. Uh, whose doctoral dissertation was used to justify uh, uh, Iraq invasion, had an autobiographical reflection on what he, was, what he went through. And Dr. Ibrahim uh, uh, al-Marashi, in an autobiographical moment, revisits the episode when his doctoral research on Afghanistan was plagiarized and used for the intelligence reports on Af- Iraq's uh, weapon for mass destruction program for both British and American governments to justify invasion of Iraq. Now, Al-Marashi draws upon Jean Baudillard's notion of hyperreality to distinguish between real Ibrahim Al-Marashi and his real research, which he conducted, and the hyperreal Al-Marashi and the dissertation that was reached, retouched and refurbished in an artificial reproduction which is now uh, uh, the artificial reproduction produced what he calls hallucinatory resemblance. And, and this hallucinatory resemblance is really uh, the terminology of Jean Baudillard. So the hyper-real Al-Marashi and his cropped-up hyper-real thesis came to acquire its own standards of reality, independently of any outside real, quote-unquote, condition. Now, just one clarification that the notion of hyperreal, and I've just said that it ought not to be uh, uh, conflated with uh, either fiction or untruths, but the discursive reality uh, that is realized uh, 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 in, in, in some context of use. So it, 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 has, it, it is a tool, it's a discursive tool. I would argue that this tool is as potent as a weapon of mass destruction. Because in any war operation, you require weapons of mass destruction and also weapons of mass consensus. And much of academics sometimes also become unwitting accomplice in that. Now, my survey of first stream of writings on the role of madrasas in religiously motivated violence and the educational reform is proposed as a policy solution. So there are about eight to nine books uh, which uh, uh, are saying the same thing. 
madrasas are responsible for the religious motivated violence in the Muslim world. Their education needs reform. So curricular reform is proposed as a kind of a policy. And this is concretized. If you were to make a survey of uh, Muslim countries, then uh, sometimes it becomes a condition on the receive, uh, uh, receiving aids from, from United States that you have to engage in madrasa curricular reform. The first book is Ulama in Contemporary Islam, Custodians of Change. Qasim Zama, my great friend, so, uh, 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 you know, this is really, I'm not critiquing this book, but I'm just saying that this book also takes a rebirth in, uh, in, in, in the discourse. And this is one of the first, first very elegantly written book. Uh, uh, and there is a flash forward, uh, sorry, flash back uh, uh, before uh, Qasim Zama enters into the text. Uh, in the flashback, uh, there is Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, and, and uh, Qasim Zama, in fact, defends ulama uh, to say that they are guardians of tradition, but they are not as uh, frozen in time as it is made out to be. The second equally elegant uh, a book which is now edited by Qasim Zama and Robert Hefner, Schooling Islam, the Culture of Politics uh, of, of Modern uh, Muslim Education. Again, the same flashback, Taliban taking over of Kabul, 1996, and uh, this uh, curricular reform and, and, and policy initiative to, to create a kind of a a moderate creature out of this uh, radicalized entity. Uh, 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 the editor says that this is struggle for hearts and minds. Uh, heart and mind is, is, is of course a counterinsurgency phrase, but definitely this is not used uh, in, in, in that spirit. Uh, it is used literally, heart and mind, uh, uh, and in a good sense. <clears throat> but what do we do of its second birth in discourse? Uh, uh, then you have Tariq Rahman, uh, denizens of alien world. And, and Tariq Rahman, uh, extremely respectable person, my great friend, friend of OSIS, uh, been to Oxford. Uh, he looks at uh, Taliban and, and some of uh, uh, these radicalized uh, uh, people in, Afghan uh, in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and he calls them denizens of a world which he doesn't know, alien. Bastions of believers. I mean, as if it's a war and, and madrasas, you know, form a bastion. And, and the last bastion in the Muslim world really is, is uh, uh, the madrasa. Uh, and uh, very, very elegant book, really. I mean, Francis Robinson provides the foreword um, and makes a reference to the bad reputation of madrasas and says that this is a wrong uh, reputation, not right, uh, and that uh, they are doing good work. Then, uh, Madrasa in Asia, Political Activism and Transnational Linkages. Uh, again, uh, the same uh, uh, flashback. And, and the flash forward is that out of the exercise, we are actually heading towards a station, which is that of moderate uh, Islam, curricular uh, reform, which, which, which is the instrument to, to reach that point. And, and yes, it's kind of a taming the Madrasa beast. Madrasas in South Asia, Teaching Terror, Jamal Malik, edited, uh, again, the same story. Uh, Guardians of Faith in Modern Times, Ulama in Middle East, 
2009. This uh, uh, book, in fact, takes us into history rather than into the concrete context. Islam and education, conflict and conformity in Pakistan's madrasas juxtaposes both secular and uh, religious education to say that one reason why uh, madrasas are really flourishing is because not enough is spent on secular education. Islamic education in Soviet Union and its successor states. Uh, this is uh, the same group that sponsored uh, Jamal Malik's book or workshop, Tragic Trees of Education in Arab World. It really requires more mainstreaming of subjects and more, uh, uh, the more uh, globalized education would become, perhaps that is where uh, the salvation lies. Moral Economy of Madrasas, Islam and Education Today. Dale Eichelman, who admits that there is a perception of certain threat from madrasas following 9-11, but that uh, he, he, as an anthropologist, he puts this, these case studies into their context to say that uh, it's all fine. Now, this is really what it adds up to uh, in a single decade. Uh, and uh, uh, I would argue that each book, authentic in its own right, uh, is, is really taking a rebirth in discourse uh, uh, for its second use, and the real book and the book in discourse follow independent knowledge trajectories. Now, various publications on madrasas, these and others, and there are a number of reports which are sponsored by U US, uh, various foundations. Uh, USAID has supported uh, studies in West Africa, in North Africa, in, in other places. Now, it's arguably, these various publications on madrasas form a diegetic space, and this diegetic word is really used in film analysis and in analyzing other visual and virtual material. And the diegetic space is born when various publications on madrasas with common theme of educational reform come to explain a major event or a cataclysm in history without bringing in uh, the details of its actors, networks, actions and places because m much of the threat or what has happened, the horrible thing that has happened is really shown as a flashback but not worked out in particular contexts. And the diegesis of, of a narrative is its uh, entire created world. It has its own time, its own space. Now, in these books, which we have just shown, there, there seems to be two textual practices that shift the scholarly attention from the site of the great game. I mean, this red spot is, is the seismic zone, which is uh, really uh, the point of great game. Then. Most of these studies actually go vertical, moving away in time or moving away in space. So you would find studies which actually take you back to 10th century or even to the time of 7th century to say that actually there is some problem with the discursive tradition or uh, uh, if, if they move in space, they would move away as far as the southern tip of India or uh, uh, other places which have nothing to do with the great game. And some of the issues of, uh, th th that are highlighted, uh, for example, 
there is a taxonomy provided on religious and uh, 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 modern sciences to say that religious curriculum should get mainstreamed. Uh, if there is more of language, computer literacy, science, then uh, uh, it is like there's a likelihood that madrasa would uh, 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 produce students who would be responsible citizens of their societies. Also, this allegation uh, that there is, there is a transnational flow of funds for the madrasas, the volume, one of the volume uh, refutes that to say that this is really, uh, uh, th there's nothing sinister about it. It's, some, it's, it's one of the routine matters uh, when people uh, leave from one place to the other for education. Uh, this is what naturally happens. Or the transnational flow of students and ideas are also benign. This is Farish Noor uh, saying that students are uh, going from uh, uh, Malaysia to, to Pakistan, for example, and this is fine. Two points are worth thinking about. Various flashbacks as well as flash-forwards, which editors and some authors present in their forwards, uh, which editors and some uh, sorry, uh, uh, the, these editors and, and some of the authors uh, they, they present in their forwards have reference to Taliban and, and, and Islamic radicalism, which is subsequently linked to the policy of madrasa reform as a remedy to the problem. Now, in my view, I find two parallel domains of where problem and its solutions come together, but remain sufficiently distant to allow for easy lessons in theory or political solutions. Let me give you one example. Uh, this is from Schooling Islam. The editor in his introduction to the volume says that the events in Afghanistan, Taliban, Islamic radicalism, and uh, they, they, they are, are part of the flashback. And according to the editor, this flashback raises two very pertinent questions. One, and I quote, just what is required to live as an observant Muslim in the modern world? After all that commotion, geostrategic, covert operation, killing of people, superpower being you know, defeated, two most relevant questions. One, I repeat, just what is required to live as an observant Muslim in the modern world? And who is qualified to provide instruction in this matter? This reminds me of a situation where a mathematician caught up in a domestic quarrel sought to resolve it in binomial equation. The Arab proverb apparently is that if you are stuck up in domestic dispute, talk about the palm tree. And, and uh, that would resolve the matter. In analyzing the madrasa curriculum, a couple of ideas recur, so as to examine the connection between curricular content and its relationship with instilling a jihadi mentality. Ulume Manhulat versus Ulume Makulat, the instrumental sciences and the sacred sciences. The latter seems foundational to the emergence of a reformed moderate madrasa. The question remains as to how is the difference, or the difference between the sacred and the instrumental sciences crucial to understand religiously motivated violence. And this is really the, the, the flash, flash forward, but also uh, the point to which these analyses ultimately come to, that 
there is a taxonomy which is provided. We have the dichotomy of traditional radicalized madrasas, which go through the policy route and become reformed, or perhaps remain outside the radar of state control. There are jihadi madrasas, which need to be brought to the fold of policy. So the ideal situation really is where policy for reforming madrasas and reform madrasas intersect with each other. And there are state policies country by country in the Muslim world where some program of modernization of madrasa is being followed. Can I have some Thank you very much. Now, each of the study on madrasa, broadly speaking, consists of two sets of narratives. One by the directors, editors, patrons of the study, and two, the actual case studies by individual scholars in different parts of the Muslim world. The editors, representing degree of assurance or commitment behind the proposition made, anchoring the project in the events around 9-11, high in making broad suggestions, not under the burden of representing reality, while scholars are high on representation, not always being able to anchor their stories in the bigger account. All these stories, uh, and I beg your pardon, all these volumes with uh, uh, individual accounts, they help each other in that diegetic space. There is intertextuality, there is a meaning multiplication. What you see uh, uh, at, at the symbolic level uh, is, is it NATO being symbolically reflected? Is it paradigmatic of uh, many countries sort of thinking about their uh, global defense? Uh, but this is really the discourse uh, and Saidian discourse. I've tried to turn it into algebra, but that's really not important. Don't sort of take it too seriously because there is a lot of difference between the logical and the actual. Uh, these Areas, these, these madrasa studies, if you were to plot them countrywide, then uh, it in some sense recreates that arc of Islam which Istigniaf Brzezinski was talking about when jihad, international jihadi network was spawned. This is uh, uh, again doing the, uh, representing the same arc again. But this is, uh, and, and then uh, uh, South and Southeast Asia and, and uh, location of madrasas in Africa. There are major, major programs running in various countries in North Africa uh, 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 under various funding organizations and development uh, uh, agencies from the West. These volumes and uh, the funding agencies, do, do you see this uh, uh, cluttering in, in Africa, uh, in, in, in South and Southeast Asia, and, and then, oh my God, this uh, 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 is really so crowded. But let's come to this neat and clean place called uh, uh, the location where you would, uh, you know, the editors and, and the patrons of this knowledge come from. Very neat, uh, uh, Boston, New York, United States, Netherlands, etc. Even Tokyo and Kuala Lumpur is an exception. Uh, Now, this survey gives us two types of madrasas as, as part of the literature I've surveyed. One type of madrasa has reference to the Afghan Jihad against the Soviet Union, which mostly remains implicit and unrepresented. And the second type 
belongs to the well-known institution in Muslim societies engaged in the routine transmission of sacred knowledge from generation to generation uh, and, and away from the geostrategic settings that give madrasa its current notoriety. Ironically, these are precisely the madrasas, the madrasas studied by various scholars in the academic uh, framework. Uh, these uh, are precisely the madrasas proposed for curricular reform. It turns out in broad strokes that the madrasas that participated as part of the geostrategic context did not find serious academic observers. I mean, we hardly have a serious study on a madrasa that was in fact mobilized for the covert operation back in 1980s using the methodology of oral history or oral narrative. Now, those religious institutions that caught the scholarly attentions, attention were not participants in the politics of Cold War. In anthropological terms, I would say that the observed were not participants, and the participants were not observed. This begs the question, why? <clears throat> Is Madrasa a myth produced after the Cold War to explain religiously motivated violence in order to upturn causation in Afghan Jihad? And when I'm talking about this madrasa as myth, please, for God's sake, this is not the real madrasa, but the hyper-real madrasa. The other stream of writing helps reconstruct conditions that lie behind the sound and fury around Islamic symbols in general that scholars gathered for their research in the post-9-11 scenario. This is the starting point for the second stream of writing. Uh, on the collaboration between global actors and Mujahideen for anti-Soviet covert operation. Now, in the previous studies by, done by uh, serious academics, uh, it was really pointed out that this blend of religious education in a classical sense or, or in, in, in the way it is practiced uh, or transmitted, transacted in, in, in existing institution and that they are not enough uh, uh, modern or mainstreamed, so there was a kind of uh, uh, a conflict shown between the existing uh, uh, madrasa or, or a dichotomy between tradition and modernity. But here in the second stream of writing, uh, we will really be talking about, uh, not we will be talking about, but these studies show how uh, uh, there, is, there was a collaboration between global actors and Mujahideen in the Soviet uh, anti-Soviet Jihad. And this is really Brzezinski's uh, 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 arc of instability. Uh, countries that provided a uh, network of Mujahideen around the world. The first book which I find very interesting is Sandy Gold's uh, uh, Travels with Mujahideen. This is 1985 publication. Margaret Thatcher liked this book very much. And, and she compared uh, uh, Mujahideen uh, or Mujahideen's uh, effort with, with the spirit of resistance. She, she provides the preface to this book. And, and uh, this is uh, uh, because Britain provides matching grant uh, to the United States most of the time. So uh, this is Ronald Reagan. And, and you know, he has these gentlemen, uh, these Mujahideen around, and, and he says that these are really, it can be compared to the founding father uh, of, of America. <clears throat> this is 1985. 
And this is the great person who organized Afghan Jihad, was in direct hotline with Ziaul Haq, and uh, Ziaul Haq in turn was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the hotline with CIA and ISI. In fact, Ziaul Haq was the head of uh, the entire thing, president, and uh, General Akhtar Abdul Rahman, uh, and the author of the book is Muhammad Yusuf, his student, and also the head of the Afghan uh, Bureau, uh, Kamal Matinuddin, he uh, provides. Uh, Kamal Matinuddin's account really is uh, uh, based on observations and also some of the security intelligence studies uh, that were done uh, uh, at that time, strategic studies, and he shows how gradually Taliban came into being uh, with the help of uh, ISI and CIA. This is an improved version of what uh, uh, Muhammad Yusuf wrote about his mentor. Uh, this is again uh, uh, Mark Atkin, in fact, uh, gave it a second gloss, and this is now a very readable book. I would strongly recommend to students. Uh, this has wonderful data, uh, because this is really an account of somebody who was a participant in the whole thing. He was heading the whole thing. And most of the time it appears as if it's a very lawless, uh, uh, chaotic uh, situation as far as the anti-Soviet Afghan Jihad was concerned. But in fact, it, there's so much of structuring to it. Uh, there is a division of labor. It could be compared to any decent program uh, which any military would conduct. And uh, these seven uh, party alliance. These were, in fact, 40. And uh, General Akhtar Abdul Rahman uh, uh, is really remembered for his intelligence and uh, his ability to reduce that 40 Mujahideen group to seven. And the United States was also uh, 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 very grateful to, to, to General Akhtar Abdul Rahman for doing this, because then they became the recipient of the CIA aid military aid. And if you, if you just see, it, it actually the aid doesn't filter directly to these commanders in Afghanistan. It filters through uh, these uh, groups. This is how the financial uh, uh, stream flowed. Uh, United States, Saudi Arabia, Arabs. And of course, there are other countries. China, Egypt, Israel, America, and Britain, who provided the arms. Ghost Wars, and this is really a journalistic account. Uh, it still needs to be harnessed for academic purposes, but it has wonderful data, interviews. This book follows uh, uh, the same tradition, how United States helped unleash fundamentalist Islam my problem with this book is that the devil lies outside the United States, and this perhaps can be re-examined. Uh, now, this other stream of writing helps reconstruct conditions that lie, lie behind uh, the, the sound and fury and around, around Islamic symbols in general, that the scholars gathered for their research in the post-9-11 scenario. Now, 
this is uh, again a very vital input because it might give us an impression that Afghan jihad was really fought with uh, 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 money that was provided from outside and, 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 and armament and jihad was internal to the people but in fact uh, we have an account of how these textbooks were uh, uh, printed in millions uh, in, in the United States in the University of Nebraska uh, uh, and uh, it, the intended pur purpose was to uh, instill the jihadi mentality. So Jim for Jihad is just one example of that. And in arithmetic, one is, stands for, the, the, the symbol for one and the symbol for two is very evident. Now, this is really about Muhammad Yusuf and, and there are other, uh, uh, Steve Cole and, and others show that how the military success of these mujahideen was because uh, they were provided with uh, uh, stinger missiles. And after the Cold War was over, there was an attempt to dismantle this entire infrastructure of jihad. Uh, the physical structure, were, it was very easy to demolish. But how to buy back stinger missiles or how to get them back? Uh, this person was part of that project. ISI called this, called this project uh, the Trojan Horse Project. Uh, one very important quote uh, uh, from Muhammad Yusuf and the other from Ol Ol Olivier Roy. Uh, uh, Muhammad Yusuf is trying to explain how was superpower defeated? And he says superpower was defeated because it required three, uh, four things. Two were provided by us, and the us means Pakistan, and two were provided by NATO and allies, and especially the United States. One thing that was required was uh, uh, to sink their differences for the sake of jihad. Number two, an unassailable base area which President Zia provided in Pakistan. The third was the adequate supply of effective arms to wage the war and proper training and advice how to conduct operations. It was the responsibility of Muhammad Yusuf under the supervision of General Akhtar Abdul Rahman to provide and coordinate the latter two. My question is, where is the much talked about madrasa in the equation? These four things do not include madrasa. And the studies which are surveyed on madrasa do not tell us anything about the political economy of it. What is proposed is that just curricular reform would do because sheer bad curriculum was an input into Afghan jihad. And those who are on the ground, they don't even talk about madrasas. Steve Cole, Dreyfus, Muhammad Yusuf, General Akhtar Abdul Rahman, they are all trying to take us back into Pakistan of 1980s. And most of the time, it's, very, it's a very difficult period for Pakistan. It is a very difficult period for observers on Pakistan because sometimes you just dismiss and say, oh, there was a dictator called General Ziaul Haq and 
there were human rights violations, uh, there was archaic Sharia laws that were implemented. But the period needs to be seen as a very vital input into the war operation or the covert operation which led to the defeat of superpower. There are at least two things that are happening here. I view uh, uh, the point of dictator, uh, General uh, Zia, as really a point of dictation, direction, and coordination. There was uh, Islamization of society created a high point of attention. Everybody was looking at it. Everybody was forced to look at it. There was press censorship. And press censorship was, had actually assumed horrible proportions. I beg your pardon, I'm try, trying to, I'm, I mean, I'm moralizing it, but in fact, one should just look at it uh, as a factual account. There were, there were journalists who were killed, and, and press censorship silenced the counter-narrative. Press censorship, or I would call positive control of knowledge, flogging of journalists was reported in, in, in Zamir Niazi and in there are so many other references. It, it, was, it was an embarrassment uh, uh, when it was, it, it, it was found out, both in international press and otherwise. And there was this mobilization done by uh, those who were opposed to Zia, and they mobilized congressmen uh, in the United States to say that, look, uh, after all, Cong uh, uh, America stands for uh, uh, freedom of expression, and, and, and if this matter is going to be brought before Ronald Reagan, he would really, really sack uh, President Zia. So uh, 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 congressmen were mobilized, General Zia met uh, Ronald Reagan, and then the Pakistan opposition party's group met uh, uh, the congressman to say, what did the president say, President Ron Ronald Reagan say? And they said, well, the president says that he has not seen a more courteous and gentle head of the state in his life. Three things were happening. I mean, if, I'm, if I were to put together all these elements together, the symbolic element, the element of institutionalization, and the covert operation, I, I'm really putting it together as a metaphor. There was no such building in, in Pakistan. This is uh, the, the usual habit of anthropologists to use architectonic uh, or architecture as metaphors. So social structure we are very fond of. So this is uh, Kantian uh, uh, expression, architectonic. And uh, while covert operation is happening in the basement or in the first floor, uh, in the middle, we have Islamization of law and institution, and there is a hard grid which is uh, 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 struck around, around consciousness. Uh, we have intellectuals in, in the upper story, and they are actually, I, I prefer this color, blue, uh, because they are really sky blue uh, uh, intellectuals. Uh, uh, one of them, Akbar S. Ahmed, uh, he, he proposed that there is something called Islamic anthropology, uh, which is, which is uh, a very important area. He even compared uh, uh, Ziaul Haq. He said Ziaul Haq actually came from Aryan community. It's a small peasant community. And some of the students from Pakistan probably would know. 
uh, and he says that what Max Weber talked about Protestant ethic, Arayans actually represent uh, the Protestant ethic in Pakistan. Uh, and and Ziaul Haq was an Arayan. And the good work he's doing is because, you know, he was, uh, he's Arayan and he, f uh, he, he has this austerity and, and very religious, etc. <laughs> the trouble is that because these are mutually insulated and uh, uh, in internally segmented, there is a genuine problem uh, of figuring out what is the total reality. I mean, uh, uh, the moment you say covert operation and, and military operation, uh, most gentle students would say, sir, can you please talk about something more decent? And, and the real fallout of, of this mutual insulation and in, in inability to get the total picture because there is positive control of knowledge, there is press censorship, some of the documents are classified and by the time it gets disclosed and declassified, it takes ages. In fact, the whole generation replaces and, and so therefore at one point of time you would have fragmentary or what I would like to call snout and tail scholarship. Uh, uh, and, and two examples of snout and tail scholarship. One is this whole uh, tradition of studying political Islam uh, without reference to the political economy of it. Uh, fundamentalism uh, is, is, is another uh, and then the search for ummah, global ummah and, and, and the latest incarnation really is uh, 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 the Islamic radicalism or, or the radicalized individual and then the concretization of it. Now, I know I'm close to my... No, actually you have us all in the grip of your analysis, so don't worry. Now, what, what are we actually coming to with this whole rambling. How do intellectuals and policy makers end up speaking from the same hymn sheet? Amazing convergence. Although if you meet people individually, they really have nothing to do with each other. Now, is there a wider incentive structure that produces this synchronization? Does it represent the loss of critical edge when it comes to scholars commenting on critique of global power or aftermaths of great game? Is there some common understanding between funding agencies in different NATO countries which are shaping research agenda and developing common understanding of radical and moderate Islam? Whatever the case may be, the end result is clear. We have a geopolitical domain where the great wars are being, was being played and, and we have an ac academic and intellectual space that ended up producing the wider consensus around the great game. Now, this tradition of academic research fails to provide critique of power. None of the studies actually question or critique alternative voice or a counter-narrative. Is it possible to say after the fact that a reference to international network of political activists organized around jihad began to get noticed in social science scholarship not at the high point of partnership between the powerful non-Islamic benefactors and Islamic activists. Rather, the scholarship attends to the network as Al-Qaeda or the Taliban in the hot moment of divorce or the uncoupling of the Islam-secular political partnership. 
around the time of the end of Cold War. Here it is possible to argue that madrasas or the jihadi networks focused on Afghanistan-Pakistan border became a problem to be studied, not at the time of their birth, but at the time of their refusal to die, i.e. get dismantled after 1989. The second stream of writing takes us to the decade 1980s, especially, and this is where we are talking about Pakistan. Now this prevalence of fragmentary or the snout and tail scholarship gets me uh, uh, the following point to ponder. In the survey, there are studies that focus on the nuts and bolts of covert operation, how money, material, and network produce violence and power broker changes, while the other stream explains violence through history of ideas, far removed in both space and time from the actual drama of war and violence. Now, the serious question is, whether the differing, differing perspectives on religious violence entail an innocent choice of differing explanation or whether there is a politics of knowledge at work that implicitly connects with the larger global interventions. That question, we'll have to get to in the course of question and answers.